I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm talking to James Butler, one of the founders of Navarra Media and now a contributing editor at the LRB. He has a piece in the latest issue of the paper on protest and populism. It's a review of two books, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution by Vincent Bevins, and The Populist Moment, The Left After the Great Recession by Anton Yeager and Arthur Borriello. Hello, James, and thank you very much for talking to me today. It's always a pleasure. So the cover of this issue of the LRB characterises your piece as protest, what is it good for? The answer you give to that question isn't absolutely nothing, though one of your responses does come close to ain't nothing but a heartbreaker. (laughs) Any sense of a global wave of change, you write, rising from the crisis of 2008, cresting in the squares of international capitals, has long since ebbed away. But maybe to begin, you could go back to the more optimistic beginning of, of that time and talk us through the when, the where, and the why of the period that Vincent Bevins characterises as the mass protest decade. Yes, um, it was very striking for me writing this piece because it meant going back to that feeling that characterised those of us who were politicised in late 2010, early 2011, when there, when it really did look like there was something finally arising from the 2008 financial crisis, uh, and which had a global dimension, which was going to bring some sort of change. It was kind of related maybe to new technology. It was also related to this kind of widespread sense that both political and financial common sense and the elites who propagated it were had lost all credibility. To be concrete about that, however, is, is I think, important. So in the Bevins book, uh, he reads the, the wave of change um, or, or, you know, particularly he starts with the immolation, self-immolation of Mohamed Bouazizi in Tunisia, which is really the, the kind of starting pistol for, for the so-called Arab Spring. And this, you know, eventually gives rise to to the departure of Ben Ali in Tunisia through mass protest. But one of the things that's that's really interesting about his account of Bouazizi's self-immolation, and, and self-immolation is a very striking thing for us, is something he, he suggests exists in the sort of protest repertoire of Tunisia in particular and, and North Africa more, more widely. You know, Bouazizi was read as as this kind of almost apolitical person who was suffering he, he'd had his he was a, a vegetable seller he'd had his you know his goods confiscated and this was part of a wider sense of corruption and um, police violence and state violence in particular one of the things that Bevins points out is is that that this was a kind of deliberate construction on the part of many people who you know who, who mobilized his death politically but Zizi's kind of wider political background in his family certainly he was linked to left-wing movements or, or, or kind of communist or post-communist movements in North Africa. So this is, you know, the, already here at the beginning, you get this kind of this question of, you know, how politicised, how conventionally politicised, you know, these political actors and these protests are. But of course, there is this this very widespread, you know, that there seems to have been a lag kind of post-2008 globally about any kind of political movement arising. And then sort of late 2010, early 2011, you get these things springing up. So Tunisia, Egypt, of course, a very big part of Bevins's book in particular. The, the Egyptian story, I think, is better known, is well known. Um, you know, the Tahrir Square protests, um, initially, again, called as response to, to police violence, National Day against um, police violence. These kind of swell and bring many, many people out onto the streets. Um, eventually they, they they precipitate eventually they precipitate the fall of, of of Hosni Mubarak, you know, not without some some push and pull first. There's an army led uh coup. The army hold elections, those elections are partly boycotted by by various people who are who are involved in the square. And that's perhaps something we can come back to, that question of um the movement between these kind of large crowd events and, and electoral politics that characterizes a lot of the decade. Um, but of course uh, eventually 
There's the Mohammed Morsi period, and then uh, Abdel Fattah Sisi drowns. Uh, there, there are protests again against um, Morsi, which are in fact objectively, and we know, uh, sponsored. Uh, they're kind of astroturfed. There's a kind of weird repetition of the Tahrir moment, uh, but this time it's sort of astroturfed with funding from sort of Gulf monarchies and things like that. They overthrow uh, Morsi. Because Morsi was the um, leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim Brotherhood, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which um, the Gulf monarchies do not like Islamist politicians who are elected. It, it troubles them um, <laughs> for, for reasons that are perhaps obvious. Um, but anyway, so Sisi um, rolls in, the AstroTurf groups disappears, he drowns the revolution in, in blood at Rabah. Um, this is a massacre of, of, of many protesters. Um, and then Egypt continues under the military dictatorship to today. And this this is essentially, this sets the, the stage for, for Bevins' central question, which is why, not just how did these protests arise, which is an important question, how, you know, why is it that the response to these, that, you know, that this kind of moment of turbulence was was for these mass protests to arise? But why is it that uh, in almost all of the cases where they have taken place, where, and, and his criteria here are not just for people to be out on the streets, but to have shaken the state in one way or another, whether that's a change in leadership or a kind of profound you know, political destabilization. Why is it that in almost all of these cases, um, and I'm laughing, but it's a, you know, it's a tragic laugh, um, the situation now is actually worse. It's not just gone back to the situation it was before. It's actually worse. And what they've brought about or what they appear to have brought about is, is the very opposite of what they wanted. The other important case study, and it's one I devote some time to in the piece, um, and it's sort of central for, for Bevins's account, partly because he was simply working there as a foreign correspondent for the LA Times um, at the time, were the 2013 mass protests in Brazil. And again, there's, there's lots to be said about Brazil, and Brazil is a very, very interesting case for various reasons, you know, and it has been the object of of sort of sociological, anthropological, political study as a sort of exemplary case about where the world might be heading for various reasons. And perhaps we can touch on some of those later. But the important part here is that, again, a small protest, a small number of committed protesters start these, um, in this case, it's uh, about, it nominally starts about sort of an incre- a small increase in, in the bus fare. Um, and these these are protests that suddenly you know bloom massively and, and and acquire again kind of political discontent about the governing party, which in this case is a left wing party, which is unusual for the rest of these cases. But they become enormous, um, you know, the, the, these protests, and they eventually destabilize the government. They they again they set into motion the process, um, which results in Dilma's impeachment, and which eventually kind of results in the rise of Bolsonaro. And there are a couple of things to say about this. So this this is the the narrative. It sort of happens in various places. Of course, the UK situation, uh, you know, there, there were UK protests in that, that period as well. Perhaps we can talk about them. But they're kind of small potatoes compared to these ones. I think there are important things to say here. One is that the role of corruption is really important in all of these cases. There's a really strongly perceived sense of corruption, perhaps arising from the 2008 crisis, but also arising from more general, uh, <laughs> the more general fact of corruption in, in, in lots of these polities. Corruption is, an, is sort of an awkward thing when it comes to political movements, because it can, you know, dealing with it can go one of two ways. Either you want to just purge the apparatus, or you think that there's something um, involved in the structure of power itself, which leads to corruption. This can, you know, this is a tension that exists in, in these protests. The other thing, and the big thing at the time, and I mentioned this in the piece, is that these were thought to be things that were a protest that were enabled by changes in technology. So they were you know, the Twitter protests, or the you know the, the they'd been enabled by uh, the rise of social media. And you know, Hillary Clinton in in twenty sixteen, I think it was, um, maybe maybe a little earlier, proposed giving Twitter the Nobel Peace Prize. Something that <laughs> doesn't it doesn't look plausible today. The other thing that I think is really important is that I've given account of these protests in terms of high politics, right? The people who are at the top, the people, um, the, the kind of massive changes in government um, or, or in political culture that has resulted from them. But actually, there's something that emerges from the accounts of these protests. And, and this is where I can say, as a participant, it's also true of those protests that took place in the UK, that there was something strangely politically sublime about participation in a crowd, a massive crowd of people. And there's lots of interviewees of Bevinses who talk about this kind of strange and, and in some ways very difficult feeling 
um, and very and not knowing how to interpret that feeling of true political sublimity like and you know in one sense it's simply the feeling of political agency which is a very rare feeling for a lot of people right to to feel like you've taken over the streets to feel like you've taken over the city to feel like something might be changing as a result of your being out there on the streets you know it's a question that's not resolved at the end of bevins's account is was this a delusory feeling was it a misleading feeling or or is it as one of his interviewees says the most real feeling you could ever have yeah, <laughs> that is a that's a very large question. Um, but I mean, you say that what happened in Britain was a small beer compared to all the rest of them. And of course it was, partly because it there was no political change in that way, that it didn't lead to that. But um, I mean, you quote Hobbes's Beer Moss, his account of the English Civil Wars. So if we go back to 17th century revolutions, but Hobbes said, I have seen in this revolution he's writing in 1668, so after the Restoration, a circular motion of the sovereign power. But if we, I mean, if we recognise that revolution is a process, in some ways a circular process, but possibly also, I don't know, a dialectical process, rather than a moment, one aspect of that is neither victory nor defeat is ever final. Because as you say, if you, depending on where you stop Bevins' story about Brazil, you have the rise of Bolsonaro. But of course, Bolsonaro is now out of power. He was defeated by Lula at the last election. And admittedly, Lula now is in many ways a pale shadow of who Lula was 10 years ago and promises about the Amazon seem to be not being fulfilled and that their you know, road building is going ahead. And those, So there's disappointment there. And that's also the disappointment of what happens when a revolutionary has to go through the hard business of holding power and wielding power and what happens there. Um, but I suppose the, the question sort of getting to here, if it is the wheel turns, but it can roll forwards or it can roll backwards mm. and you can't necessarily tell where it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, one can become very bleak and depressed about these things. And I think in a certain sense, there's a duty on people who are politically committed, whether they're kind of directly involved in, in it or not, you know, to try to think about these events in a way that's not kind of catastrophic. It's sort of disablingly catastrophic. It's very easy. I suppose my issue here is two things. With Hobbes, you know, the Hobbes quote I think is really interesting because there really is, I think, in a lot of these cases, a sense of that older conception of political change as being this sort of, you know, this kind of degradation of of kind of constitutional orders um, until they sort of return to their original place, right? But actually, in some cases, it feels like it's actually worse than that. You know, or particularly for people who are, who are who are on the side of the protesters, which is that when you lose, you don't just end up in the place you were before; you end up in a much, much, much worse situation. And this is a thing that's even observable in the kind of electoral form of politics, which you know, which is sort of the the other half of of the decade that the Bevins book doesn't touch, but the Borrello and Jaeger um, book is interested in. Is you know, in, in the case of Britain in particular, of course, the the failure of the left in, in leadership of the Labour Party hasn't just resulted in its return to a relatively marginalised but stable position within Labour. It's resulted in its kind of general extirpation from the party and total removal from any position um, of power or influence. A sort of utter damnatio memoria in 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 the case of of Corbyn himself. One of the things to be said here, however, you know, as a melancholic by nature, I am inclined to these kind of readings. Nonetheless, I remember what the left was like prior to 2010, <laughs> which is to say it was tiny, it was marginal, it had almost no purchase on mainstream conversation. So I, I'm always kind of cautious about saying, you know, this is now the sort of worst position that we've been in in 10, 20, 30 years. In a sense, the reading that I think is most plausible, and it's a reading sometimes alluded to by Bevins in, when he's writing the book, is that, you know, it's pretty clear post 2008 we live in the exhaust you know kind of exhausted global system but one which has sufficient tenacity to resist change change from below change towards the left but can't sort of resolve itself in a in a stable settlement a kind of status quo ante for for 2008 and that seems plausible to me and part of this is this kind of returns us to this question about demands about the things that were said about these movements, which they were leaderless, which they didn't have kind of conventional political demands in the sense that, say, a socialist campaign might have had in decades or cycles prior to that. 
you know, importantly, that's qualified in in lots of these accounts, right? It's qualified in in Bevins in particular, saying, "Well, this is partly true, partly not true. It's, it's partly the result of of the press picking up things that were congenial to the sort of doxa." of the Anglosphere at the time, which is, oh, yeah, these like young college graduates who, who aren't sort of scary Arab socialists, but, uh, you know, just like someone you might meet at Columbia or UCL. So it's important to qualify it in that sense. Nonetheless, the other thing that's important to say here is like that the sort of orthodoxy of those protest movements is widely scorned by the contemporary left, which has rediscovered the importance of state power. It's rediscovered the importance of organization. It's rediscovered the importance of labor. It is worth situating them historically. So one of the things that the Bevins book, again, does fairly well is say like lots of this suspicion of of party organisation and the desire to run things by these kind of interminable, um, like mind-bendingly long and sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, utterly, utterly horrifying, you know, hours-long consensus-seeking meetings arrives out of the kind of Porto Alegre process and the collapse of the state in Latin America what I would add to that is that in the West, certainly, it also arises, you know, from a sort of very conscious decoupling from the abuses of state socialism over the course of the 20th century, a desire to acknowledge and move away from those kind of structures of power and abuse and violence, which which were, you know, seen as intrinsic to it. And, they, and it lives through the, you know, it is transmitted through the climate movement. I suppose the thing to say and the the thing that's striking about the the end of the Bevins book in particular is the peculiar optimism of lots of the people who are involved in these processes, right? And that's, you know, sometimes that's just, you know, people say to themselves, ah, well, this is just the beginning, partly because, you know, in order to keep on fighting or keep on struggling, you have to convince yourself that, that you haven't completely lost forever. Nonetheless, it does seem plausible. I can't see any very obvious solution to the large structural problems that not just individual nations are facing, but the planetary structure, if you will, is facing. So in that sense, they're obviously right, but it doesn't mean the account you have to make of that decade leaves you wondering, you know, if we're going to try the same thing over again, then we're very clearly not going to get anywhere. Mm. A lot going on there. I mean, I suppose one, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> that's why, I mean, one thing to say, of course, you know, a Luther continua, the whole question is you don't, I mean, it's one of the really striking things I thought about Trump's election in that when he won, he got up there on the stage and he said, it's been a really long, hard campaign. But he had this sense of, and now I've won and it's all over. And there's this kind of, when you say Hollywood, but it's a lot older than Hollywood, it goes back to, you know, any story which ends with a wedding and the kind of the idea that, that, <laughs> that, that the marriage is when things end. Well, actually, it's, it's kind of only just beginning there. And the idea that for Trump, it was all about the campaign and the actual business of, of governing. The idea that that might be harder than campaigning. And I know that's an example from the right and that you know, we'd like to think that the left doesn't make that mistake. But the, there is this sense that you don't, you don't have the revolution and everything's fine because the revolution has to carry on. But to go back to that question of, of Britain, I mean, one of the ways in which Britain is an interesting example is because it's a very clear case where that all that energy went from the streets into party politics, Corbyn becoming the leader of the party and that you know, movement towards, well, its eventual defeat in 2019. I mean, so what is there a lesson there about the idea that, you know, what can't be done in the streets can perhaps be done in Parliament, but actually it turns out it can't be done there either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, something that struck me while reading both of these books and lots of the accounts in particular of the the wave of, of so-called left populist experiments is that they tend to understate the sheer weirdness of what happened. It is really, really odd that an MP like Jeremy Corbyn should have been anywhere near the leadership um, of the Labour Party. That's a really, really strange phenomenon. It's really, really odd that, you know, lots of young people, as well as sort of older layers of people who had become disengaged from politics for many years found themselves energized and attracted and became involved you know it was it's very very weird to see sort of you know otherwise trendy young people among whom i probably no longer count myself getting excited about you know the the history of of trade union bureaucracy this is a very it was a very strange moment in 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 british politics 
you know, and this is something that that in some ways is, you know, all of these moments, all of these movements are are in some sense weird, and they involve sort of weird alliances between, you know, strata, in fact, you know, groups of society that that, that rarely find themselves in the same place. But I take the point, and I think it's an important one, which is which is that uh, you know political skill is not a, you know is not a negligible phenomenon, you know, and one of the things that 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 I think was a hard and very brutal lesson of the the the, the period of sort of twenty fifteen to nineteen was that it's not something that can be learned on the hoof, and it's a, you know it's an important and distinct skill. I'm always struck, and I, I you know I, I have a tendency to to think in kind of Italian analogies. Um, on this stuff, I I, I'm, I was struck by the something that happened with the Italian theorist Mario Tronti, who after the sort of failure of the kind of big explosion in in the late sixties, right, the, these kind of explosion of factory militancy, goes back and one thing he does is spend a long time reading and thinking about the English Civil War, which is something that is really curious. And the other thing is that he develops a theory about the autonomy of the political, right? Where he says, you know, this is the, the political is actually a distinct sphere. It's something that requires particular... And he's reading Weber and he's thinking about these things. You know, and the, it, this marks his return to kind of institutional politics and to the official Communist Party. Um, you know, and and with that, it beca- you know, like the, the danger here... Which should be obvious is the is the endorsement of a kind of um, you know placid, timid, institutionalist, um, internally corrupt or internally or- oligarchical um, you know uh, politics, which is often characteristic of Eurocommunism and the Italian Communist Party in particular. Nonetheless, the insight there that there is a that there is a kind of particular and peculiar political skill. Um, and a particular in developed democracies in particular, um, and now I would extend that like long, you know, far beyond sort of Western Europe, um, is that there is a particular sphere of the political which isn't reducible uh, or, or can be overcome just by street mobilization or just by kind of economic action by trade unions. Um, and that means like the conclusions that you draw from that are difficult. Um, you know, they're about kind of restraining the habit of political actors to to kind of hegemonize everything in terms of like the next election or whatever. The good example, I think, from British politics, and I say in the piece that you've got to be cautious about drawing examples from the right and saying, oh, well, the left should do that, but left wing. Um, but, <laughs> but the capacity of the capacity of uh, the, the the people who campaign for Brexit to think not in terms just of the next election or party interest, but to think in terms of say the next decade and how you build towards uh, making this a, a, an issue that that is so central to, to 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 the political process that you can't you can't escape it and it becomes you know central to to, to what happens. So you know that I think is a lesson that can be translated from one to the other. You probably you know I I'm skeptical about the possibility of sort of left wing Trump or left wing Farage, um, but but uh, you know perhaps I'm wrong. Um, yeah, but so the, the 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 other thing here, and particularly when it comes to left populism, is I think a, a tension that really does exist. Um, you know, and and I'm very skeptical about the term populism entirely. But but insofar as insofar as this is a real, it describes a real phenomenon. It, you know, the desire to give institutions a really good shoeing, which was really tangible post 2008. I think it's easy to forget now that we're we're so far away from it. But people really wanted to give, in particular, the banks, but but also everyone who's enabled them a good kicking, um, and and it was so tangible. And you know, one of the things that's not gone into in some of these you know in either of these books really is the something like the assembly process in spain where there were these kind of just these big testamentary you know people just standing up and saying you know i was screwed in this way i was screwed in that way i was screwed in, you know, this was very very central to the movement there so the tension there between wanting to give those institutions a shoeing a good kicking and the need to use them effectively to make people's lives better is a very, very hard one to resolve. And it's not something that any of the populist movements seem to have done very successfully, left or right. I mean, that question of Brexit and the way in which that referendum became about discontent with the Cameron Osborne project. And yet it was channeled into such an incredibly unhelpful, <laughs> to put it mildly, decision. <laughs> I mean, and the, I mean that as often happens with referendums. I mean, to take another Italian example. I mean, from the sublime to ridiculous, from from twenty to to Matteo Renzi. But he, when he was trying to reform the constitution and quite a lot of boring stuff about reducing the numbers of MPs and just changing the way that Italian politics operates and 
when he thought he might be beginning to lose it, his response was to say, well, this referendum is actually all about me. And it's whether or not you want me to stay or not. And so everyone said, well, actually, we'd like you to leave. And so they voted <laughs> against him. But, but the, <laughs> Brexit, it was about so many things. And yet it was reduced to that one question, do we stay in the EU or do we leave? And well, obviously, we're still living with the consequences of that and will be for many years to come. But that... I, I see what you mean, which is that... that you know, so so the the really the interesting example from from these accounts is someone like Gabriel Boric in Chile, who was a left wing protester, a student leader, but who made the decision to go into formal politics to the great and dare to sort of represent the the movement to the great um, hostility of many of the people he was claiming to represent. And one of the lessons here is that whenever anyone chooses to stand up and say, "Right, I'm going to be," you know, representative for this movement. You know, the the opprobrium will be endless. People will accuse you of selling out, of betraying, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's just something that people probably have to bite and deal with. But Chile has been trying to replace its constitution, its Pinochet-era constitution, for a long time. And, you know, there's, there's an obvious desire in the country to replace it. What's striking is that when... You know, so Boric, not, not solely, and, and you know, the, the processes overlap with his presidency. The left-wing draft for the constitution was billed as the most progressive constitution on the planet, enshrined rights to abortion, enshrined ecological rights, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was rejected by the people in, in the plebiscite. Then, you know, a right-wing constitution was drafted, which um, just uh, in December of last year was, was also rejected by the, the people in the plebiscite. So they're, they're stuck with this Pinochet-era constitution like an albatross around the neck. But, but this is a really striking example of, of this phenomenon, which is that, you know, the, the, the kind of inchoate desire for something to change founders on the sort of horrible, difficult, practical um, question of how concretely you're going to do it, um, what things are going to be prioritised, you know, what actual concrete material, tangible change looks like in practice, um, you know, and, and and there's something very sad about the the Chilean case, um, you know, and that that you know Boric is experiencing some real political difficulties um, in power, which he you know which he is now as as, as president, but the um, it's it's a real you know it's it it's it's very very striking that that actually it's not just about the sort of um, you know desire to negate what's there. The actual second phase of that, trying to make some sort of concrete program, you know, uh, uh, desirable, is very 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 hard. And and you know that that again, I think we 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 find ourselves in this kind of you know this sense of kind of global exhaustion without plausible or or you know in one sense just simply politically permissible alternatives. And this is partly why you get this desire among these among these movements to sort of forestall this question, right? And so it was visible in the Occupy movement, but 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 it continues to today, even in something like Extinction Rebellion, which is the sense that you know the political system is corrupt. It's it's um, you know it's incapable of dealing with the severity of the crises, and therefore it needs to dissolve itself into these these movements which are going to somehow through the processes of direct democracy um, you know uh, produce a kind of constitutional movement or, or produce some sort of um, uh, uh, truer or, or more just form of governance and political order um, you know and so so that's one of you know extinction rebellion's demands is you know dissolve parliament and 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 hand over power to the constituent assembly basically um and nonetheless, it's you know, the, so this belief that there is going to be somehow an emerge, you know, as an emergent property of people coming together um, and and simply discussing that the true system of governance or the real way to deal with these problems is going to emerge, that doesn't seem to me to be particularly credible anymore, um, if it ever was. But it's a strong intuition and it's a strong desire and it's a, people have a very strong sense that that some sort of deliberative process needs to be involved in a way that that, that formal politics. You know, it's clearly obviously doesn't offer them. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think that's an important thing to preserve that sense um, that, that that actually what they don't want is just another better leader. But there, there is some desire for a sort of, uh, you know, a greater democratization or, or something. And again, this is this is something where I'm, I, you know, I really want to stress the, the how easy it is to be retrospectively condescending to lots of these movements, whether domestically in the UK whether it's the Arab Spring, whether it's the sort of these movements in Latin America, this, who who kind of reach out for this, you know, who who reach out for something like democracy as their as their kind of byword. That, that's not nothing. It's an important thing. It's an you know, it's a very very clear way of saying. It's a word that means for these people. 
I don't have agency. I don't seem to have any agency over any part of my life. Um, and the only way that they can see to deal with that, and that's part, and partly this is the, the result of the kind of withering of the parties and the sort of, uh, you know, the void between between people and government. Um, the only way they can see to deal with that is simply to come out onto the streets. That seems to me to be an utterly plausible um, response, but it, it's clearly an incomplete one. Yeah, and that condescension that who are we to condescend because you know, he'll be condescending to us in 20 years' time. I mean, there is that. <laughs> the wheel can still turn back the other way. And, you know, there are plenty of examples. I mean, again, I mean, Italy, 1946, right? So it's after the utter catastrophe of 25 years of fascism and civil war and German invasion and all the rest of it. But they had a referendum. They got rid of the king. They held constituent assemblies. They drew up a new constitution. It hasn't quite lived up to it, but actually you read the Italian constitution today, you think I'd quite like to live in a country that was actually run by these on these principles. And more recently that you know that the Bolivian constitution was rewritten not that long ago. These things are possible. And that question of whether or not to go out on the streets, there are cases where East Germany nineteen eighty nine perhaps turns out that you're pushing an open door, but if you don't push, you don't know the door's open. To say everyone should sit at home waiting for things to get better. Nothing ever got better because people <laughs> sat at home waiting for it. Right. And there's a potentially liberating thought here, right, which is that no strategy you, you try is going to be utterly new. You know, pretty much everyone has tried everything that, that's available and out there and and whatever. And, and you know, all of them work to some extent. None of them are, are really the kind of uh, amazing, you know, one size fits all, one true way, um, one weird trick to overthrow your government. Um, wouldn't that be nice? I mean, wouldn't that be really, you know, make things a great deal easier for all of us? I mean, I suppose in, in one sense, the the thing that I think is important here is is to recognise that, you know, that my, my experience of the past decade and a bit is that things are deeply, deeply unpredictable. You know, if you'd asked me in 2010 whether I thought, you know, there was going to be a, a, a left-wing leader of the Labour Party, I'd have sort of laughed you... I'd have laughed you out of out of the room. Certainly, if you'd asked me even in 2014 whether I thought Donald Trump was going to be the American president, I'd certainly have laughed you out of the room. These things are important, and and this just means that for one thing, you you can't see around corners, right? Like that 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 matters. Um, that you know, I'm reminded that there's that um, W. S. Merwin poem about John Berryman, you know, where you know. Berryman's advice about writing, you know, Merwin asks, you know, how do you know if you it's any good? And he says, you die not knowing. You know, if you have to know, don't write. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I don't think that's actually true, but, you know, it's a nice sentiment. It's certainly true about politics, right? You don't know what's around the corner. Um, and therefore, you know, there's something important about being humble about these kind of, you know, the, 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 these claims to grand strategy, which are very common, particularly on the left, which is like, ah, oh, well, you know, if everyone joins my 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 party or, or does things my way or, or, you know, uses this technique, then we're, we're going to be successful. You know, in, in a sense, I think there are real problems here, which is that it's not just in the political sphere. It seems to me that both culturally and politically and economically, there are increasing difficulties in the kind of process of replacement. And I don't just mean in terms of the sort of American gerontocracy or something like that, but the pipelines through which cultures and thought and politics and even distribution of wealth are renewed and changed from generation to generation have somehow become blocked, right? And and it, it might just be, and this is the depressing way of looking at this, it might just be that, say, the long 20th century, you know, from the invention of the light bulb to the 2008 financial crisis was an era of unprecedented social mobility and social change. And maybe things have become, you know, uh, I mean, Yanis Varoufakis likes to talk about, you know, a new feudalism. I'm not completely convinced by that. Um, but there's something to it, right, which recognises that, that the the kind of basic structures, um, you know, or the basic claims made by capitalism of one kind or another to uh, you know, to 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 you know to 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 change societies, to reward um, endeavor, to you know, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things have, have always been slightly nonsensical, but but those claims are really clearly not true now. And and you know, Britain in particular is 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 you know has this kind of poisoned rentier economy, um, but the phenomenon is 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 global. I mean, you know, the the, the way to succeed is not to 
it's certainly not to, to take the risk of starting, you know, a new project or business. This is this is not something that you would advise someone to do. Um, so yeah, perhaps that 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 you know, perhaps that 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 long century um, it, it is just you know it has just gone, and and we're in a, a new settlement now. The more optimistic way of looking at it is that actually we're, in, and I'm I'm very wary of sounding like Trotsky in the middle of the 20th century, so the, the death agony of, of capitalism. Um, but perhaps we are in, in, in the very difficult and turbulent point of transition uh, to, to a new economy of some kind. Um, and I think there's, there's, there's the, again, plausible reasons for thinking that. One of the things I think that's important to say is maybe one of the ways of reading left populism, which is the subject of, of the second book in, in the in the review, and again, one of the one of the difficulties here is that well, it's it's the right who are very successful with populism, and that should give us some pause. You know, it would you know, in a sense, you're you're talking about the sort of shadow without the object. You know, one of the successes of left populism is that it has been enabled by the the sort of massively easy forms of connection, but very shallow forms of connection, which constitute um, political involvement in the digital age. So whether that's Facebook, whether that's social media, whether that's, you know, just kind of clicking to join the email list, there's a very touching and very moving and very upsetting moment um, in one of the interviewees or, or what, one of the interviews of a study quoted in the Borriello and Jaeger book, which is an old French communist, um, you know, and for all the, the kind of uh, sins of the old PCF, um, you know, says, you know, when I left La France Insoumise, no one asked why I was leaving. There was no political inquiry. There was no, you know, asking about points of disagreement. I just had to click unsubscribe. And that's characteristic of these new contemporary political developments. They they flare up and spread very easily. But the sort of durability and commitment involved, it perhaps in, you know, in making kind of substantive political change, it just seems to evaporate on contact. Um, and, and so that sense of, of, you know, whether left populism or populism as a whole is a symptom of a sort of atomized world in which, yes, you have the sort of these 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 leader figures, someone like Trump, someone or, or on the left, Mélenchon, Corbyn, you know, whoever, people connect to them directly through subscribing to their email list or liking them or following them on Facebook or whatever, you know, the, I'm sure there's a TikTok equivalent, which I am absolutely refusing to ever find out about. But these kind of, you know, direct personalized connections lack all of the intermediating institutions which characterized or have characterized political parties historically. And those intermediating institutions are the things that, one, allow the renewal of the actual representative force of the party, so i.e. the people who actually sit in the bloody parliament, you know, or, or who lead the movement, but to kind of educate and cohere and bring together as a kind of substantive cultural and political force um, the, these, these movements. It, it, perhaps we live in an, an era that's so mediatized now they're, they're simply, you know, they sim there's simply no space for parties like that. But that's a very depressing pro prospect because what that means is that political change is going to come through what? Influencers? I mean, please, this is really worrying. Yeah, and perhaps that direct or that feeling of a direct relationship between the leader and the mass is, a, is an inherently right-wing phenomenon. On the good side of that for the world, when it collapses, <laughs> when it collapses, it collapses very quickly. And that but it, it, in terms of the left, I mean, what, would trade unions be one of those institutions that's that's disappeared? Is there a sense in which mass protest has, in recent years, has filled a space that would once have been held by organised strike action? Mm, it's a really, it's a really interesting question. There was a book a few years ago, actually, it's probably almost ten years ago now, um, by uh, an American uh, writer academic called Joshua Clover, um, called Riot Strike Riot which is a really interesting book in that it suggests that the strike is the translation of the much much longer attested, more widely attested um, riot. So that, you know, this is the classic kind of moral economy of the crowd or, or, or something like that. And he suggests that the strike is a, 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 a form which relies on particular political settlements, um, you know, particular representative bodies, the capacity to, to withdraw your labour in a, you know, in a given form, if your labour is concentrated in a given space, if the kind of labour you're doing has a particular um, kind of strong power over something that needs to be produced, um, you know, etc. You can see the, the the 
the structure of the argument. I don't quite buy it. It's an interesting. It's an interesting argument. I, I, you know, the reason it's on my mind is that I, I did an interview or an in- event with 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 Clover many many years ago where I said, look, it isn't the missing term here, the protest, right? You know, and so like the, this is a, a huge and important historical phenomenon. Um, and I mean, he didn't quite agree with me, which is not surprising. Bevan suggests that that protest is a creature of the media age. So he gives this genealogy of protest at the start of the book, where he suggests it arises from the realization of the new left in the United States, which he sort of describes rather memorably as sort of you know, an orphan brought up by television because of the result of the the the, the McCarthyism and, and Huac and, and and all of that stuff. You know, so he says that you know there's no organic connection there, and the new left starts to think, especially you know, realizes it can do something eye-catching and get much more coverage and bring people in, and you know, and, and suffers immediately all of the problems that arise from that, which is you get lots of new people who are thinly connected and who you know think you know believe differently and don't want to do the yeah whatever. Um, I I don't think again that that probably tells you something important about protests in the latter half of the 20th century and the 21st century. Again, it is a longer, much longer uh, thing. Uh, you know, it has a much longer history. You know, you can go back to the fishwives at Versailles if you want to. Um, you probably don't say fishwives anymore, do you? Um, <laughs> um, so uh, seventeen eighty, whatever. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the the you know, so it has a very very long history in that sense, right? Like a, a well, the pilgrimage of grace. I mean, there are all sorts of things which you know, pilgrimage of grace, right? Exactly, exactly. And you can go, you can go back and back and back and back. Peasants' revolt, whatever. You know that that said, there being this sense that what you're doing in a protest is one trying to impact the press and the media and be represented and part of kind of political discourse because where discourse is shaped is in the press um and the sense that you know what what you're trying to do is is demonstrate the strength um of your movement so so that that classic kind of punning dual etymology monere demonstration to warn but monstrare of course to show to to really make visible the strength of your protest uh, you know the, the strength of your forces now that is obviously true and obviously meaningful in in an era in which there's a kind of centralized broadcasting network in which there's a you know in which politics is made very heavily through media um and it's striking that in this period you know strikes do seem to decline while street demonstrations rise we have seen a return of organized labor to some extent Perhaps this is a, a kind of grass is greener thing, but it seems like the the case in the United States is is much more inspiring and much more interesting than the state of organised labour in in Britain. And again, you know, we get angry text messages from trade unionist friends by saying this, but that you know that the 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 TUC is a very conservative institution in the sense that it you know it is very very cautious about confrontation. It's very very cautious. And that's partly because British trade union laws are so restrictive. They're so um, you know pr- you know profoundly punitive. Nonetheless, I think it's pretty clear that there's a there's a you know if the political parties in Britain suffer from internal oligarchy, and it's certainly true of the Labour Party, the same is true of the trade union movement. And that's not a surprise. That's just a sociological fact. What's interesting in the United States is that Sean Fain, who's the the general secretary or president, I think of um, of, of United Auto Workers who's had a lot of media coverage recently. He's a very canny media operator. He's a very good strategist. You know, he 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 won his position through grad students who are organised by UAW um, in the way that happens in in American trade unions. It also happens in British trade unions uh, to some extent. Who are organised by UAW, and and they 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 organised to elect him as a much more militant and confrontational leader of the union um, than his predecessor, the kind of establishment um, sort of peacemaking candidate. And so that's striking. Those grad students were radicalized in the Occupy movement. They were radicalized, you know, they were part of the Bernie movement. And they grasped that there was a need for kind of organized labor as part of this equation. You know, I guess the question in the UK is that organized labor exists, but it exists largely, not exclusively. And this is changing to some extent, certainly around the fringes and certainly around the grassroots. Um, you know, it, it is it is very heavily concentrated in the public sector. And so there's a whole wide range, you know, so, so you know, there are lots of people for whom... You know, you, you hear people work in the private sector. And think, yes, it would be nice to work in the public sector where I have a kind of union projected job. It's much, much harder outside of that. And so, you know, if nothing else, if you think that organized labor is part the missing part of the equation here, and I think it's very plausible that that's the case, certainly in those, um, again, to return to those, you know, early 2010s protests and the Arab Spring in particular, they become really, you know, those ones that really challenge the state, you know, particularly in North Africa, 
you know, it's when the trade unions and when the kind of federations of, of trade unions get involved and send people to the demonstrations that th- things start to really look confrontational and look important. So yes, that 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 matters. It, I, it's hard to see in Britain exactly how that would develop, but perhaps I'm being too pessimistic. You mentioned the urban riots of August 2011 in London and saying they were related to the anti-austerity protests, but distinct. But I mean, what is the difference between a protest and a riot? You know, to a to a chief of police, it's, they're all rioters. That's a kind of it depends on your point of view. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the difference is a very very porous one. Um, certainly, as you say, from the perspective of a chief police officer, every protester is, you know, an embryonic rioter. And 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 look, you know, it, the the one of the things that's that's um, obviously very clear from the kind of interviews done with the rioters in in the post you know post twenty eleven study. It's a Liverpool University study. You think co-sponsored by the Guardian. If you look at those interviews, one of the things that those rioters say, you know, and again, like a, a riot is very hard to put kind of any kind of political complexion on because it will contain all sorts of multitudinous, like you know, inchoate, even more inchoate than a protest um, uh, desires. But one of the things, one of the threads that links lots of these, you know, uh, interviews together is that they feel a sense of agency of a kind that they haven't possessed for a very long time. And of course, you know, is it surprising that it manifests in in sort of, you know, you know looting and, and, and violence? Well, I don't think it is completely surprising. Um, you know, so, so look, I, 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 yeah, and I've also been part of protests that have been called riots by police officers and, and have been called riots by the press. And I, you know, often that's just a lie, but occasionally they're, they're protests which have become certainly confrontational and aggressive. You know, you look at the, one of the things that I think is, so, so I say in the piece that, that yes, they're they're related but distinct because I think the actors are, are largely distinct. You know, the people involved in them were very distinct from those involved in lots of the student protests um, and certainly the the kind of wider anti austerity movement that happened in early twenty eleven. Um, you know, there was some crossover, um, but but it was it was fairly minimal. Um, you know, so so they're, they're distinct in the sense of the, the social constituency they mobilise are, are, are different. But you know that, that the, the end of those student protests, you know, whether that's at Millbank, whether it's in Parliament Square, you know, people were, you know, people were throwing bricks at the Treasury windows. If you know, that's a plausible thing to call a riot. Um, you know, if only <laughs> I mean, they, those windows are, are reinforced. I mean, they're, they're not going to break. But but that's a plausible thing to call a riot, or at least riot-like. Um, you know, and you, and I think it's incumbent on people who are very you know, and I understand there's a, a strategic political reason to draw a distinction between your political protests that you want to succeed and the riots that, that that happened later. You you want to be in some sense a legitimate part of the political process, even if it's the kind of confrontational part. Um, nonetheless, I think protesters should be sanguine and people who support pre- protests should be sanguine and recognise that you're not ever as far away from a riot as you often think you are. Um, and so perhaps to be um, a, a bit more um, a, a, a bit more understanding of the the, the um, you know the dangers of, of 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 too easily adopting the kind of police view of the world, right? Um, <laughs> I think that's something that one wants to avoid. I mean, thinking about one of the largest protests in Britain, you know, the anti-war marches in 2003, which, I mean, in a sense, achieved achieved nothing. Tony Blair said, "Aren't you lucky to live in a democracy? I'm off to, I'm off to drop my bombs." I mean, in a sense, that was a utter failure. That protest, it totally failed. It had a straightforward, single demand: "Do not invade Iraq," and it was ignored. But I mean, one of the last, I suppose, obviously successful protest movements in Britain was against the, the poll tax in 1989-1990, culminating in what is always described as a riot in London of the 31st of March 1990. It was incredibly badly handled by the police. They thought, oh, there won't be 20,000 people. In fact, there were more like 200,000. And it was chaotic and all the rest of it, but it achieved its aim. And the immediate demand was the community charge is deeply unfair. It was widely hated. So like 80% of people were opposed to it. There was also a non-payment movement, but there was also this action on the streets. And the poll tax was eventually replaced in 1993, so it took a while. But it, it also contributed fairly directly to the downfall of Margaret Thatcher, right? That she, within, within eight, nine months of that, six months even, I can't count, but by November 1990, she was out. And her authority 
in the country and in her party was sort of irrevocably lost through that movement because it's kind of you know and there's nothing the Tories hate more than a loser so yeah I mean it's interesting isn't it that it's it's quite hard to imagine how something like that would happen today and so one of the things that I found striking over the last couple of years is that there was a sort of embryonic attempt to and and look this is partly because you know the way that payments operate have changed right like lots of you know you know things operate in automated ways they operate kind of out and this is you know it's it's very successful but of course there was you know a, a kind of embryonic and not enormously successful non-payment campaign as part of the you know the the kind of huge inflation spike in in energy prices you know campaigns like this have happened so i I get one of the things i'm saying is it's hard to imagine quite something exactly like the poll tax movement happening today and there are reasons for that one of the reasons is just how deeply interwoven the payment process for taxation in particular is with the way most of us are paid. Actually, not freelancers. You know, I've just made my extremely annoying annual payment to HMRC. And let me tell you, if people had to pay their tax annually, as they often do in the United States, it would it would it would probably be much more of a significant um, political issue, even for people on the left. I think because it, it, it would not be the kind of drip feed of something happening in your paycheck month after month. That to one side, <laughs> <laughs> in a libertarian, you know, it's never it's never quite completely quiet. Um, that to one side, um, it, you know, it sh- I think it should be recognised that that. So you're right, of course, that 2003 was a failure. But you know that even failures of that kind have consequences. So there are consequences for political leaders in in ignoring um, m- movements like this. You know, it, it certainly contributes to the sense that many young people, myself included at the time, it's like, why on earth? Well, I certainly why would I vote for the Labour Party? Why would I vote at all? Um, you know that 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 was my position in the mid two thousands. Was you know I, I this 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 party has absolutely and there are consequences to this consequences in in people's um, you know attachment and belief in politics. Look, it's not um, you know it's not a, a kind of good consequence for people you know uh, you know who desire political change in any way that it creates a generation you know mostly kind of apathetic and 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 detached from. Um, the the political process, and I mean apathetic, and not necessarily in a, a condemnatory way. And one of the you know like one of the consequences of failures of various kinds is you know instilling in people a belief that things can't change. And this is where something like that feeling of political sublimity that accompanies joining in a mass demonstration is a really important thing. Um, there's this the amazing um, passage in Alexander Kluger's book about um, it's called drilling through hard boards or something like that. It's a collection of political fables. And he's writing about Rosa Luxemburg um, arriving slightly too late for the 1905 revolution. She hears the 1905 revolution is going on. She goes to Kiev. And by the time she's there, it's over. Um, and she she tries to reconstruct with people, you know, their, their fear, this feeling of, of kind of political sublimity, of, of being part of something larger than, than themselves on the street and behaving in ways that they didn't know that they would and uh, in these kind of pro-social ways. And he has this very striking metaphor, which is derived from her, is this sense of the revolution arriving as a sort of newborn adult, a kind of giant baby that you have to somehow keep alive through its first kind of days and weeks and months. And mostly it doesn't, right? Like it's an enormously fragile thing that kind of breaks apart. Um, it's such a striking metaphor because it's so different from the way that people write about revolutions in the 20th century, these kind of armed things. But this suggestion that there needs to be some sort of um, institution that can can care for and um, nurture and, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the incipient revolution is, has always been very striking to me. The other thing to say here is like there are two things, right? Failures matter because, um, you know, because they they demobilize and debilitate people, um, but they're also more common than successes, and that's true wherever you are on the political spectrum. You know, the left can be very gloomy about this, but like you read the right talking to themselves, like, oh, the left is organized; it runs all of culture. Like all young people are left wing, and so you know, it's it's worth taking those victories where you can. Um, you know, I, I, I find myself circling back to the question of Brazil here and the way that people tend to look at Brazil as a sort of harbinger of a possible future because it has these very sharp um, gaps between rich and poor. They're visible in the urban architecture. They're visible in the structure um, of politics. Uh, but it's also a country in which, you know, putatively liberal ideals have been written into the, you know, were written into the early constitution while it was still a slaveholding republic. And one of the things that... Um, 
you know, it was still still a slaveholding economy. Um, one of the things, so you know, <laughs> all men are created equal, uh, except um, you know. So one of the things that 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 various kind of left wing literary critics, I'm thinking of Roberto Schwartz in particular here, have said about Brazil in the you know Brazil's literature and culture is that it has a strong sense of the difference between ways the way things are actually done. And the way things are taught, you know, the things are done on paper, uh, and that's manifest in in kind of its its kind of black economy, but it's also manifest in this kind of deeply ironized relationship to its kind of political culture, right? This belief that 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 you know, if anyone says something sincerely, then that's a kind of ludicrous and um, fatuous thing to do. Um, and this sense, I think, in, in this sense, you know, it is now a much, you know, look, the, the, the classic example is there was a mayor of Sao Paulo in, in I think, mid 20th century, who literally ran on the slogan, he's a crook, but he gets things done. You know, if that's not a harbinger of the future um, state of the world, then I think, you know, sadly. So, so, so in that sense, I think that that kind of, you know, ironized gap or that kind of gap um, that sense of there being this kind of profound, just just abyss between the way that people talk about politics or universal institutions, and this is of course um, on display at the moment very clearly um, in in Palestine. Um, the the gap between this sort of universal rhetoric and the actual reality of political power is sharp, and that's debilitating, I think, and it's something that's that's going to characterise or is part of this these various political pathologies we're experiencing today. And do you see a way to correct that i mean if i saw a really easy way to correct it i would i would be i would be all in um i do think that there's a temptation and look i you know i I look back in the period of 2015 to 19 and think you know what did i do wrong what could i have done better what would i you know what what advice would i give to myself now at the the beginning of 2015 that i learned by the end of 2019 And, and i think you know the the careful and clear application of honesty and reason you know, it sounds almost kind of idealistic, but maybe idealism is what we need. You know, to think clearly and honestly about the things in front of you without the desire to to advantage your faction in one way or another. Um, it, it's so essential to political truth, and it's so essential. Like people, you know, like you know, I think any journalist knows when they're writing something that's like a little too indulgent of someone they agree with. You know, and and we've all done it. We've all done it from time to time. And this is a council of perfection in some ways, but kind of the critical honesty is, you know, it's so it's so essential. And being able to say what is actually happening in front of your face, yeah, you know, it's it's an underrated skill because people don't do it. You know, it, you know, it, you know, people yell at you if you describe the Labour Party as functioning like an oligarchy, but it does function like an oligarchy, and it functions like an oligarchy, you know, in every part of it. People yell at you when when you say, "Look, the leader of the Labour Party made pledges and he broke them," and this is this is important. People yell at you when you say Corbyn, you know, undervalued political skill. Um, you know, he, you know, he was mostly largely incapable of that. That's an important thing to learn. It's so. I have to believe, I you know, I have to believe that the application of reason and honesty in the public sphere can get us somewhere better than the place we are now. But it's a precarious hope. It's a very minimalist hope. You know, I do think, I mean, the, the, the other thing to say here is that one of the, the things that arose in that millennium, millennium, that, that decade, <laughs> that, that, those two decades of, of this millennium, is a sense that, you know, the press is full of uh, liars and frauds and people who are kind of seeking to deceive and of course you know we we, we can cite a, a list of examples as, as long as our arm i would say that i think you know the public sphere is a sewer at the moment but i don't see how you can do politics without it and a kind of commitment to to functioning political journalism and, and the capacity to think publicly and honestly is essential you know i don't see how political change of 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 the kind that i certainly desire is is possible without it you know sometimes there's a very contradictory thing that arises from people who are otherwise sort of left wing is this belief that you know the press are on the one hand um you know immensely powerful and 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 can you know control the beliefs of um, you know, huge swathes of people, while at the same time also 
um, those same people also just desired to see to see the left really go for the press and and sort of call them out as you know liars and whatever. And and I don't, I don't think those beliefs sit very comfortably together all i'm saying i suppose is i think the discursive sphere is not just a kind of secondary thing it's it it matters Um, it matters you know it's where people do political thinking and receive political ideas Um, the right certainly does know this it's why it is increasingly invested in in new media in one way or another Um, and and i think those of us who are who are not sort of you know insane um you know, uh, headbanging right wingers. <laughs> you know, and I, I include you know people who on in, in the increasingly evacuated centre right on this. Um, you know, might might want to think about how to have a functioning public sphere, one which you know doesn't think that anything is always comes with an ulterior motive. That doesn't you know like that. Anyway, I I don't want to to rabbit on about the the illness of the public sphere, but it's an important thing. Um, you know, and 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 I hope that. That kind of <laughs> that against the algorithm we can we can we can find some sort of common cause in in reason and thought, but you know, I admit that it's a precarious position. James Butler, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read James's piece in the eighth of February issue of the LRB, along with Rebecca Solnit on losing San Francisco, Tom Crew on origins of the gay novel, Anna Della Subin on Anne Hedwana, the world's first writer and Jonathan Ray on Alistair McIntyre, including the observation that the problem with political Marxism isn't that it is dogmatic, scientific, authoritarian or economistic, but that it is deeply optimistic. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.